Those nights were anything but silent. World War I was the debut of the machine gun, air warfare, chemical weapons. In December of 1914, Pope Benedict XV proposed a temporary truce to celebrate Christmas, but the political and military leaders on both sides refused. The soldiers in the trenches, though, had other ideas. This is part two of our four-part series on understanding Christmas. And in this episode, we'll turn to one of the oldest Christmas stories of them all. It isn't the familiar one from Matthew with the magi from the east and their gold and frankincense and myrrh, or the one from Luke with the shepherds and the angels. Those come a little later. What comes first is the story of a scraggly-looking prophet out in the wilderness, baptizing people in the Jordan River and declaring the coming reign of God. What comes first is the story of John the Baptizer. And as it turns out, this Christmas story is a kind of war story. A story told in the midst of war, in the wake of war, and in the language of war. All for the sake of God's peace. I'm Matthew Meyer Bolton, and this is Strange New World, a show about understanding the Bible for skeptics, believers, and everybody in between. The Bible is not a book. Let me explain. The word Bible comes from the Latin word biblia, which means books, not book. This distinction might seem trivial, like, okay, the Bible is a bunch of books bound together, so what? But it actually makes all the difference in the world. Think of it this way. When we imagine a library, we never ask, what does the library mean? Or what does the library say? Instead, we think of a library as a place, as an environment full of books, a kind of space that we enter to learn and to grow and to engage in a larger conversation that's been going on for a long, long time. A conversation between the authors on the shelves in the library. A library doesn't have one voice, it has many voices. It doesn't mean or say, it hosts and facilitates the conversation between writers and readers who do the meaning and the saying. A book on one shelf in the library might refer to another book on another shelf, riffing on its argument or disagreeing with it or building on it to say something new. And then a third book refers to the second one or back to the first and so on, creating a web of conversation up and down the stacks, a conversation with different levels and layers of poetry as different themes and patterns and motifs get reprised and developed as the conversation unfolds. That's what a library is, and that's what a library does, and that's what the Bible does, too. We decided to call this podcast Strange New World after a famous essay by a Swiss theologian about a hundred years ago, Karl Barth, who wrote of what he called the strange new world within the Bible, a world so ancient, so different and yet familiar, so strange that it lures and pushes us to think new thoughts from new points of view, to dare and to reach, as he put it, and ultimately to grow out beyond ourselves. The Bible is a kind of place, a world we enter, albeit a strange one, like a library or a gymnasium, to learn and grow and get stronger and more flexible. And the very fact that it's strange, 
that it's ancient and fragmented and sometimes confusing and bizarre, and at the same time haunting and intriguing and compelling and sometimes beautiful. This very strangeness is what helps us stretch and learn and grow. And like all libraries, the Bible contains lots of other little libraries within it. For example, the book of Genesis begins with not one, but two quite different creation stories. And the New Testament begins with not one, but four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each with its own distinctive content and style. And even some individual books in the Bible are themselves like little libraries, with different authors having contributed different sections over time, sometimes with very different agendas. And all this diversity, all these different voices, help to show how some criticisms of the Bible are actually based on a misunderstanding of what the Bible is in the first place. For example, there's a kind of cottage industry of exposing contradictions or showing inconsistencies in the Bible or listing old ideas I don't agree with in the Bible. But that's a little like saying, oh, I don't like that library. There are too many contradictions in there. Or I don't like that library. It's got too many old ideas in it that I don't like. Of course there are contradictions and objectionable ideas in the Bible. That's what a library is. It's many voices in dialogue. And that means both agreement and disagreement. And like any library, there's plenty in it that we don't and won't agree with. The Bible isn't a single book from a single point of view. It's more interesting and useful than that. Those who think the Bible is somehow marred by inconsistency, and by the way, that's a view shared by many of the Bible's defenders as well as its critics, are working from the premise that the Bible is a book. But once we see that it's a library, these criticisms fall away and the game changes. The question isn't whether you're a Bible-believing Christian. You don't believe in the library. You value it. You esteem it. And so you enter it. Because in the give and take of engaging its conversation, you may learn and change and dare and reach and grow out beyond yourself. If the point was consistency, our ancestors could have chosen one gospel or created a single consistent harmony of the four, but they didn't. Instead, they simply included them all, leaving their differences intact, letting each one stand on its own in complement and intention with the other three a little library within the Bible's larger library. As Mark puts it, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ is his baptism by John the baptizer and God's declaration to Jesus, you are my son, the beloved, in you I am well pleased. Since God's declaration is in the second person, you are my son, in you I am pleased, the implication seems to be that for Jesus, this is new information, as if the baptism is a kind of second birth through which Jesus is adopted as God's Son. And that's where, for Mark, the good news of the gospel begins. And then Matthew, a little later, says, no, no, the real beginning is earlier when Jesus is born to Mary and Joseph in their home in Bethlehem, and some magi from the east came to visit the newborn king. And then Luke says, yes, the beginning is the birth, but Mary and Joseph were from Galilee and only came to Bethlehem because of the census. And by the way, here's a story about some shepherds and angels. And then John says, oh no, you've got to go back farther than that. You've got to go all the way back before everything, before there was a before, before time and space. 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and lived among us. Four perspectives, four Christmas stories, four messages of hope and peace, each told in the midst of an age of war. On Christmas Eve, 1914, though the generals and the officers on both sides were insisting that hostilities continue, the young enlisted men in the trenches took matters into their own hands, risking insubordination and, in some cases, risking their lives. The Germans made the first move, it is said, by singing Silent Night, Stille Nacht, and then the English responded in kind, singing back the first Noel. Think of those lyrics in that context. Silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright. The artillery, the machine guns, the technologies of death had all gone quiet. All was calm. The first Noel, the angels did say, was to certain poor shepherds in fields as they lay. And in the fields and in the trenches, all along most of the front, clear across southern Belgium, the German and British troops sang to one another on that cold winter's night. After a while, some scouts ventured out onto the no-man's land, the shell-blasted wasteland between the trenches. They met each other there, shook hands, wished each other Merry Christmas. More and more followed, rising out of the trenches one by one by one. As the morning came, they exchanged cigarettes and chocolate. Not a shot was fired. Someone found a soccer ball, or a football as the English called it, and a game broke out between the sides. Like other classical Greek authors, Luke begins by situating his story in time, listing imperial, regional, and religious authorities of the day, an intro that, at first glance, seems, well, like we could pretty much just skip it and move on. But look again. Luke is using this literary convention to make a profound and audacious point— The last figure he names in the list, John the Baptizer, is both a relative nobody compared to the eminent officials and the only person on the list who's given divine authority. The phrase Luke uses here, the word of God came to John, is a reference to a classic on the shelves of the Bible's sacred library. The phrase is identical to the one used in the Septuagint, the ancient Greek translation of Hebrew scripture, in the book of Jeremiah, which reads, Jeremiah, to whom the word of God came. Luke's point is clear. Despite appearances, the real power, the real authority, lies not with the empire, with their chariots and legions, but rather with a scraggly, unarmed figure alone in the wilderness, preaching repentance. Remember, Luke is writing in a time of military occupation. The memory of the Roman suppression of a Jewish rebellion, including the temple's destruction, was still fresh. 
And precisely then and there, Luke proclaims his gospel. Beyond the Pax Romana, the so-called peace that is really a simmering, low-grade form of war, a new age of genuine peace is dawning. It's worth pausing here on that word, gospel. It's not a term invented by the New Testament writers. They borrowed it from the world of war. Gospel could refer to any major good news, but typically it was used in the context of military triumph, as when a messenger would return from the battlefield to announce the gospel of victory. Or again, shortly before the time of Jesus, an official imperial inscription hailed Caesar Augustus as Son of God and declared his birthday as a beginning of good news or gospel for the world. No, the New Testament writers didn't invent these terms. They co-opted them, both Son of God and Gospel, to apply them not to the emperor, but to a peasant from Nazareth. It's a bold, subversive signal, especially given the fact that Jesus then goes on to gather no army or weaponry, but rather a small, misfit band of ordinary people. Not to be soldiers, but to be preachers and healers. The New Testament writer's co-option of these military imperial terms is a counterpoint, a contrast, an opposition to the way of Caesar, the way of violence and war and domination. It's as if they're saying, no, not Caesar Augustus on his war horse and chariot. Jesus of Nazareth, without an army, without a weapon, is the true child of God. And no, not the coming of the emperor, but the arrival of this peasant, this humble teacher and healer, is the true beginning of good news for the world. Against Caesar and his Pax Romana, his peace through fear and violence, the gospel set Jesus as the one the prophet Isaiah calls the Prince of Peace. In other words, for the gospel writers, Christmas is a war story. They write in the midst of war, in the wake of war, in the language of war, not of domination and terror, but of healing and peace, of renewal and the kind of stillness that comes when we lay down our arms. That's what the word armistice means. It comes from the Latin arma, or weapons, and sistere, or to stand still. Imagine the stillness, the quiet, that came from laying down weapons on both sides after so much grueling, savage trench warfare. Armistice Day, the end of World War I, would come on the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month of 1918, nearly four years after that improvised, unofficial, insubordinate truce on that Christmas Eve. But the Christmas truce was a glimpse of Armistice Day, a taste of it, an experience ahead of time of that stillness, that peace that was to come. Silent night, holy night, an exchange of simple gifts and an impromptu ball game, the joy of it, the relief, the world as it should be, if only for a night and a day. And there is another central meaning of Christmas a meaning that can get lost amid the busyness and sentimentality. Christmas is about the hope when all hope seems lost, but it's also about the peace that comes in the midst of conflict. Even a fleeting moment, a glimpse, a little world, 
in which we can experience that greater peace, God's shalom that is still yet to come. Not the Pax Romana, the peace enforced by fear, but the Pax Dei, the peace of God, the peace that is not simply the absence of conflict, but the presence of love and justice and well-being. The presence that will mean not only putting down our arms once and for all, but abandoning them, or better, transforming them, swords into plowshares, tools for cultivating the fields. If Christmas begins with hope, it takes shape and form as an experience, a taste, a promise of God's peace, the shalom that is, even now, coming into the world. And just in case all this wasn't clear enough, this story in Luke also refers to another book on another shelf in the library, the book of Exodus. In the Exodus story, Moses is a kind of wilderness prophet, and he leads the Israelites to the verge of the Promised Land. But before they get there, while they're still on the far side of the River Jordan, Moses passes the baton to Joshua, and it's Joshua who takes them into the land of milk and honey. The Hebrew name Joshua means God saves. And in Luke, sure enough, John the baptizer is a wilderness prophet renewing Israel on the far side of the Jordan. It's as if Luke is saying, Behold, just as in the former days, once again God has sent us a wilderness prophet to lead us to the edge of the Promised Land, another Moses, we might say, who goes as far as the Jordan but no farther. And just as Moses passed the baton to Joshua, so John will pass the baton to Jesus. Now, Jesus probably spoke Aramaic and called himself Yeshua. And if we take Yeshua and translate it into Greek and then into English, we get the name Jesus. But if we take the same Yeshua and translate it into Hebrew and then into English, we get, you guessed it, Joshua. It's the same name, God saves. So, as the gospel writers frame the story, John is a new Moses, Jesus is quite literally a new Joshua, and the whole story is a new exodus, a new crossing of the Jordan, and a new entrance into the promised land. The music is ancient and familiar, not the triumphal imperial march of Caesar Augustus, but a far more humble sound, more simple, more lovely. For example, you might think of the sound of muddy and war-weary young men singing carols in the night across the wasteland between the trenches. That's what a Christmas carol really is, or should be, no matter where it's sung or who sings it. It's a hopeful, daring act of peacemaking, of reaching out into the dark, through the barbed wire and the smoke and the orders from the commanding officers to keep fighting. Every Christmas carol is an olive branch, offered with the courage to see that scorched stretch of God-forsaken earth not as a battlefield, but as a ball field, if only for a time, not as a place of division, but as a place of reconciliation, a promised land. In the first episode of this series, we explored how Christmas begins in the dark, in the place of apocalypse, of hope when all hope seems lost. But if Christmas begins with hope against hope, then what? If God is on the way, what do we do to prepare? One answer is here in Luke's Advent and Christmas story. 
John the baptizer is calling on people in the countryside and in Jerusalem to come and be baptized. Now, in those days, baptism was a Jewish practice typically reserved for non-Jewish converts to Judaism. It dramatized a kind of deep cleansing and renewal, leaving the old life behind and beginning a new one afresh. But here John is saying that not only converts, but ordinary Jews as well, indeed everyone was to be baptized, was to be renewed in this way. Why? Because, John says, the Lord is coming, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Now what does that mean? Here we are, in the library, listening to that great conversation all around us, to the levels and the layers of poetry, the themes and patterns that get picked up and reprised again and again. And it turns out this whole choreography of a messenger, a herald coming to prepare the way of the Lord, is a reference to at least two other books on two other shelves. First, Luke quotes the ancient prophet Isaiah, who lived in another time of war and exile. It's from Isaiah that Luke borrows the notion of a voice in the wilderness and that all flesh shall see the salvation of God. And second, Luke's account echoes the ancient prophet Malachi, who proclaims that a messenger is coming to prepare the way for God's arrival. But God's messenger, says Malachi, doesn't separate righteous priests from unrighteous ones or cast the unrighteous ones into outer darkness. No, on the contrary, the messenger sanctifies them all, cleansing them all and freeing them from sin, thereby making their offerings, and by extension the entire community, pleasing to God. Malachi's metaphors here are cleansing or sanctifying images, not excluding or ostracizing ones. He uses the metaphor of a refiner, for example. A refiner cleans and strengthens metal. And likewise, a fuller cleans and beautifies textiles. So, just as refiners and fullers transform and preserve metal and cloth, In the same way, baptism transforms and preserves the people baptized, restoring them to their dignity, beauty, and freedom as children of God. In this sense, for Luke, John's baptism is a baptism of peace, not dividing people into groups of good and bad, but transforming and preserving everyone without exception so that all flesh may see the salvation of God. Here again, these lines in Luke shimmer and resonate with ancient lines from older books in the sacred library. Luke is saying that the days Jeremiah and Isaiah and Malachi spoke of, the days of changing hearts and changing lives, those days are here, now. John proclaims a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and the word he uses for forgiveness is aphesis which means release. This baptism of forgiveness is a new exodus, a release from captivity to sin, to violence, to the foolish, captivating idea that might makes right. The foolish, captivating philosophy of Caesar, the counterfeit son of God. The Prince of Peace is on the way. And so the work of preparation for Christmas is to set about laying down 
our arms, renewing our hearts, remembering our baptism or Jesus' baptism, and rededicating ourselves to living a more peaceful life with our loved ones and especially with our enemies. The Christmas truce of 1914 isn't just something that happened one Christmas long ago. The Christmas truce of 1914 helps us to understand what Christmas is. It's an armistice, a stillness, a taste, a sacramental glimpse, an experience of the peaceable kingdom to come. The day after Christmas, the soldiers all returned to their trenches, picked up their arms and resumed their hostilities. A great many of them didn't survive that war, but those who did kept the stories alive, the stories about how that Christmas Eve and Christmas Day they caught sight of something much larger, something that can scarcely be named. A garden, a handshake, a piece of chocolate, a desolate field restored on earth as it is in heaven. Christmas begins in hope, but its end, the goal to which it points, is peace, God's peace. The silence of artillery, the quiet of birdsong, the joy of a ball game, and the ordinary, breathtaking sight of enemies released and remade into friends. Strange New World is a SALT Project production, written and produced by me, Matthew Meyer Bolton, with help from Elizabeth Meyer Bolton. Music by Pablo J. Garman, Jamie Vizard, and Tom C. Sounds. If you like what you hear, spread the word and give us a review wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help people find us. And if you'd like to drop us a line, feel free at community at saltproject.org. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.